morning to open your Bibles to the prophet Obadiah and to stand as you do so. The prophet Obadiah. There's no shame in looking in the table of contents. I mean, I have shame for you, but I'm sure God doesn't. The prophet Obadiah, we're going to begin looking at the first four verses of uh, this book, the Bible, to us this morning. Obadiah, beginning in verse 1 through verse 4. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what God says. Obadiah 1.1, or rather Obadiah 1, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. You no doubt heard the phrase that that good things come in small packages. And and I would submit to you that is certainly true when it comes to Obadiah. This prophecy that is in front of us, it is small by comparison. In fact, Obadiah is the smallest of all the Old Testament books. If we can put this kind of language to it, Obadiah is sort of the runt of the litter when it comes to the Old Testament. And because he's the runt of the litter, this prophet is also usually neglected. Be honest. How many of you frantically thumbed through trying to find Obadiah? At the end of the day, poor Obadiah just doesn't get a whole lot of love but we're going to give him some love over the next few weeks. And that's because God has a message for us through this prophet. But before we hear that message, we need to do a little bit of preliminary work. The soil needs to be prepared, if I can put it that way. You understand this? You can't can't just throw seeds out on the dirt. You have to prepare the soil if you expect growth. You You have to get the dirt ready, right? Well, similarly, if if we are going to to really understand the prophecy that is in front of us, we have to uh, ask and then answer four initial questions. Let me give them to you at the front end. Who is Obadiah? Who is Edom? What's the occasion for this? And then why should the church give any attention to Obadiah? Those are our four questions that we're going to try to answer very quickly this morning. If you put your eyes on verse 1, you see the announcement, the vision of Obadiah. Hence our first question, who is this Obadiah? And the short answer is this, church, we don't really know. (laughs) And, And that's because not only does this prophecy really tell us nothing about who he is, but also in ancient Israel during this time, Obadiah was a very common name. It would be like finding a John today. No offense, but you're not all that unique, right? There's a, lots of, there's a lot of Johns running around. So all we really know about Obadiah is this. 
We know his name, which means worshiper of Yahweh, and we know his occupation. We know that he is a prophet. And just to be very clear, because of how much sort of the charismatic movement has infiltrated evangelicalism, when, when I speak and when the Bible speaks of, of prophets, it speaks of those who are speaking forth the very words of God. These aren't feelings. These aren't impressions. These aren't like 80-20. Maybe I get 80% right, 20% wrong. No, this is the pure and unadulterated word of God. That's all we know about Obadiah. We know what his name means, and we know that he's a prophet. Answering the second question, though, is a little bit easier, and that's because Scripture has a lot to tell us about who Edom is. When you read there in verse 1, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we, we know exactly who the prophet is referring to. Esau, you'll remember, was Jacob's twin brother. So, so the patriarch started with Abraham and then Isaac, and then Isaac had two sons, twins actually, Esau and Jacob. And Scripture tells us that it was the descendants of Esau who later become known as the Edomites. And so this is a prophecy about Edom, who is the brother of Israel or Jacob. Israel and Jacob get used. Are we, are we keeping up? Okay. This brings us to our third question as we seek to prepare the soil. What's the occasion for this? What gives rise to this prophecy? What's, what's its background? Proverbs 17, 17 says this, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And that is nowhere more true than in the lives of Esau and Jacob. Now, I have a younger brother, and some of you do too, and so you understand most brothers, they fight. But these two, when it comes to Esau and Jacob, their fighting began all the way back in the womb. And the record of Scripture reveals to us that their fighting began in the womb and their fighting went all the way to the tomb. These guys did not get along. Geographically speaking, Edom was situated just southeast of Israel, which means, to put it in context, we might understand, they were neighbors. They lived in the same cul-de-sac. But again, they didn't get along. And when I say they didn't get along, what I mean is, is that throughout Scripture, Edom comes to sort of uh, be this bitter enemy of the people of God. One striking example of this is found all the way back in Numbers chapter 20. As the people of God uh, are marching toward the promised land, they request passage through Edom's territory. Now, to be clear, Israel didn't want any handouts. They were more than willing to pay for the food that they would eat and the water that they would drink. Anything that they would consume, they, they were willing to pay for. They simply wanted to walk on Edom's roads because it would offer something of a shortcut. But Edom refused. And not only did Edom refuse, but Edom threatened war. Catch this. If Israel, if his own brother, stepped foot on their land. From there, things only escalate. Several centuries after this, the single most devastating event in all of the Old Testament occurs. Do you know what that event is? It's the fall of Jerusalem. It took place in the year 586 B.C., 
And, and I'll spare you a big, long backdrop to it, but what you need to understand is that because of Israel's rebellion to God and to God's law, the Lord brought covenant curses upon Israel. And the instrument that God used to bring those curses was Babylon. And this whole thing, it was utterly horrific. Yet you have to understand that the city itself, the city of Jerusalem, was devastated. The people of God, they were deported out of the promised land. Even, even the temple itself was completely destroyed. For Old Covenant Israel, the fall of Jerusalem, it really was for them hell on earth. But here's the key. This dreadful judgment, while it was carried out by Babylon... It was also carried out by Babylon and her allies. And the Edomites played a vital role in all of this. Psalm 137 gives us a glimpse. And, and if you have the ability to turn there very quickly, you, you might want to. Psalm 137 sort of paints us a, a very sobering picture of these events. <clears throat> I'm going to read verse 1 in your hearing. Psalm 137, verse 1. Listen to the people of God lament. The song begins, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Do you hear the context? The people of God have been uprooted from the promised land, the very land that God had given them, and they've now been hauled off into captivity in Babylon. And they're weeping. They're weeping at this. Fast forward down to verse 7. Listen to the words towards the end of the psalm. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, that is Esau, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Now these are harsh words, no doubt. But what I want you to see here is how in this psalm, Babylon and Edom are lumped together. Because what happens is Babylon and Edom become co-belligerents in Jerusalem's ruin. It's this sort of background that leads most scholars to think that Obadiah prophesied just after the destruction of Jerusalem. So it's like the prophet is saying, Edom, we are brothers. We are brothers and you rooted for our destruction. You joined forces with our enemies. Yes, Jerusalem has been destroyed. But Edom, your turn is coming. That's the tone. That's the flavor of Obadiah. Now, before we dive into the text, we still need to answer one final question. And perhaps in some of your minds, it is the most important question. And that is this. Why Obadiah? Why, why should the church pay any attention to this little book? Here's a short answer. This is Christian Scripture. Or to say it a little bit differently, all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, all Scripture is Christian Scripture. 
That is to say, all of God's word is for us, the church. It doesn't matter if we're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament, history or narrative, poetry or epistle, wisdom, literature, or apocalyptic. The entirety of the Bible is the church's book. So sometimes Christians make the mistake of thinking that, that, <clears throat> that Scripture started with Matthew or something like that. No. Our Bible begins in Genesis. This is Christian Scripture. And, in case you're wondering, this is what Scripture teaches about itself. For example, those familiar words from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We are told that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, that's very familiar, but, but we don't want our familiarity to blind us from what is being said there. What can't be missed is in 2 Timothy 3.16, when Paul writes, all Scripture, he is not first and foremost talking about the gospel according to John or the book of Romans, though that is certainly included. At the time of 2 Timothy 3, Paul is referring chiefly to the Old Testament Scriptures, so it is the Old Testament scriptures that are profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that you, the Christian, would be equipped for every good work. Now, the same reality is brought out in Romans 15 as well. Listen to what Paul says to the church. This is Romans 15.4. Romans 15.4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Did you hear that? Paul says that whatever was written in former days, speaking of the Old Testament, and we know that he's talking about the Old Testament because in the verse immediately prior to Romans 15.4, he's quoting from Psalm 69. He's quoting from the Old Testament. So when Paul writes, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, he's talking about the Old Testament. So who is the Old Testament for, according to Paul? Well, it's for us. It's for the church. It was written down for us. Let me just give you one last example for the sake of time. 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. Paul gives a handful of examples from the Old Testament. So in verse 7, he warns the church not to engage in idolatry. And then he quotes from Exodus 32 in the whole golden calf incident. After that, in verse 8, Paul warns the church not to engage in sexual immorality. And in doing so, he refers back to an episode in Numbers 25, when Israel was engaged in sexual sin, and Phineas had to put a stop to it by literally spearing a couple. Paul then warns the church not to fall into the trap of putting Christ to the test by complaining. His Old Testament citation Numbers 11, and the people of Israel complaining 
that God had drugged them out in the wilderness and he was not able to feed them. Now catch this. After those three infamous episodes, Paul says this to the church. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things, things I just was referencing, they happened to them, to Israel, as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. It's 1 Corinthians 10, 11. And Paul is saying that stuff, it really happened. It, it wasn't allegory or something like that. No, it's history. It really happened. But Paul says, pen was put to paper. It was recorded for us. It, it is to teach us, the new covenant people of God, how we are to relate to God. So, to return to the question that you've all forgotten I asked. Why should the church give any attention to Obadiah? And the answer is because all of the Old Testament, including this little book of Obadiah, it has been given by God to the church to teach, instruct, encourage, correct, grow, convict, and sanctify us. Now, with all that being said, right, after Lord willing, the, 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 the soil has been adequately tilled so the seed can go down deep and bear fruit, now, church, we can begin to understand what God's message is for us this morning. What is that message, you ask? Well, two truths. One revolves around God, the other us. The first is the affirmation of our sovereign Savior and the second is the awfulness of spiritual pride, of spiritual suicide. So if you're taking notes, sovereign Savior, spiritual suicide. If you're not already, turn back to Obadiah, and we'll begin to look at these four verses a bit more carefully. When it comes to God being the sovereign Savior, notice how our God introduces himself to us in verse 1. Thus says the Lord God. And while I will concede that's a fine enough translation, it could be clearer. If, if you're reading in the ESV, do you see how the word God there is in all caps? Now, it, you are used to seeing a certain word in all caps. It's just not this word, right? You're used to seeing the word Lord in all caps. Well, it's the same word here. So I, I haven't been able to crack this code completely, but but I think that the ESV apparently didn't want to render verse 1, thus says the Lord, Lord. So they went with God. But, but what I want you to understand is that that word God that is in all caps, it's the covenant name of God. It's the name of Yahweh. It's the name that is normally in all caps that reads Lord. Tracking? That being said, it's the word Lord, the, one, the first Lord God, the, the non-caps. It's that word that we want to key in on. And that's because the Hebrew here, it doesn't mean Lord in the sense of like sir or something like that. But what it's putting its accent on is authority, rulership, sovereignty. In fact, some translations have rendered verse 1, this is what the sovereign Lord says. So here's the point, church. The very first words uttered by God what do they put front and center except the fact of his sovereignty? But here's the problem. 
For us, too often words like sovereignty turn out to be fighting words. We want to argue about these things, don't we? We want to sit down and we want to wrestle. We want to go, oh, God is sovereign. Well, well, how meticulous is God's sovereignty? We hear about God's sovereignty and some of us react and we go, well, well, what about free will? I've known people who have interpreted God's sovereignty as sort of a license to sit back in the lazy boy and eat Cheetos all day long because if God is sovereign, God is sovereign. I've even heard people say, well, well, if you really believe that God is sovereign, then you sort of have this uh, like Christianized fatalism or something like that. What is, is. Now look, we can have those arguments. Don't misunderstand me. Truth matters. Don't hear me say this morning that we should be squishy. That's not it. But my point is this. Long before these are fighting words, they are comforting words. Here's what I mean. Look again at verse 1. Because it says, thus says the Lord God, or, or thus says the sovereign Lord. And what's next? The sovereign Lord concerning Edom. So don't miss this. The sovereign Lord is not saying these words to Edom, is he? Edom is not the audience. Who's the audience? It's Israel. It's God's covenant people. So these are words not directed to Edom, but these are words about Edom or concerning Edom. To which you say, okay, pastor, what's the punchline? Hear me out. God is saying, that he is going to bring down Edom, but he is saying it to Israel. And he is saying it to them to encourage them, to reassure them. You see, we might have these concepts in our mind. We might have these theological words memorized. We might think abstractly that God is sovereign, and that's fine enough. But what Obadiah is revealing to us, what they are being reminded of, is that the sovereign God is not the sovereign God. The sovereign God is their sovereign God. And he has the power to cut down to size their high and mighty rivals, even the likes of Edom. Isn't that the language? Isn't that the message? Middle of verse 1, we have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Okay, what's that message? Rise up, verse 1 says. Let us rise against her. And that's Edom. Let us rise against her for battle. What's that, you say? Well, the sovereign king of the world is summoning all of the surrounding nations, and he is bringing them against Edom. The enemy of God's people. Verse 2 is equally explicit. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. And the I in verse 2, the I will make you, that's God. God will make you, Edom. God will make Edom small among the nations. You see, God is at work here. God is the one doing this. God is pulling the strings. Here's the deal, church. God is sovereign. And what that means here, at least in the context of Obadiah, is this. That his authority and his rule and his sovereignty, please hear this, it extends far beyond the borders of Israel. 
The true and living God isn't some tribal deity, one whose jurisdiction is limited by zip codes and borders. Say it another way. God isn't just God over Israel, but also Babylon and Edom and America and Russia and Ukraine and China. God is sovereign. And it's important to note that God has always been king. But specifically now, right now, today, in our world, not in Obadiah's, in our world, following the resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, that kingship is seen in the God-man. Right now, the Lord Jesus Christ is seated at his Father's right hand. And what we are told in Scripture is that he is there. He has been installed as king. And and not king over only like your heart or only spiritual matters or only what happens in the confines of these four walls. No, Christ is king and his jurisdiction knows no bounds. The Bible tells us that he is king of kings, that he is Lord of lords. Which means that he is king not just over your Bible studies and not just over our worship service, but he is king over governments and nations and rulers and presidents and governors. Jesus Christ is king. And again, this isn't some abstract thing. It is supposed to give us great courage and confidence. Our king isn't limp-wristed. He's not weak or absent or asleep at the wheel. What Scripture tells us is that he is the enthroned son of God and that he is ruling and reigning over all things. And as king, Scripture tells us, he is in the business of making his enemies his footstool. Which is really another way of saying that he is defending his people. That's what's happening here in Obadiah, right? Don't miss the context. Because Edom ransacked God's people, God is now going to mobilize an army of nations to destroy Edom. Remember, Edom is the enemy of God's people. Well, similarly, does Christ not love his bride? Does Christ not love his church? Has Christ not vowed to defend his people? Sometimes we hear of the atrocities taking place around the globe with respect to Christ's church. We hear of suffering and persecution. Tyrannical governments and despotic leaders, they prey upon the church. We know this wicked people pillage the people of God. But he who sits in the heavens laughs, Scripture tells us, at the vain attempts of men to unyoke themselves from King Jesus. This is what the angels announce in the book of Revelation. They rise up in a choir and say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. It is King Jesus who brings judgment upon the world. 
The angels continue, for they, that is the enemies of God's people, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. Do you hear Revelation? Christ is saying, you wound my people, I wound you. You shed their blood, you will now drink your own blood. Revelation continues, yes, Lord, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The Lord Jesus Christ, he is the sovereign Savior, and he has promised that he will judge his enemies. He will judge our enemies, and he will save those who are his. This was Obadiah's message to ancient Israel, and it is the same message for us today. We serve a sovereign Savior. And that ought to give us great encouragement. Now, I told you that God's message to us today revolved around two truths. The second is the awfulness of spiritual suicide. Let me ask you, at root, what was Edom's sin? If you were to peel back all the, the, the layers here, if you were to peel back the, the layers of the onion of Edom's heart, what would you discover? And there's really one word, and it's the word pride. And that is because pride, dear church, is spiritual suicide. You see it specifically with respect to Edom in verses 3 and 4. Because the prophet says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Do you see the pride? Do you see how it's put on full display? Do you see how it's front and center? And Edom's pride, it was related, oddly enough, to their terrain, Let me explain. The nation itself was relatively small. It was only about 20 or 30 miles wide and something like 100 miles long. If you think about it, that's a a pretty small piece of real estate. But what this land lacked in square footage, it more than made up for with its height. You see, the region was covered in extremely high and jagged mountains. Some of them reached over 5,000 feet above sea level. And it was this rough and rugged terrain that made Edom feel safe. You see, because of the mountains and and having these sort of high and and elevated positions, they, they were very easy at fending off enemy forces. Which, of course, led to their sense of pride. They thought they were untouchable. They thought no one could get to them. They thought that they would win all the battles. Now, lest we think we are in the clear here, because we are not Edomites. If you think, hey, we live in a desert, not the mountains. That that means God has nothing to say to us. You'd be sorely mistaken. Because pride, just as it was for Edom, so it is for us. It is spiritual suicide. And we need to acknowledge, we need to have the spiritual discernment to recognize it, that as individuals and as a church and, 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 and as a nation, we are always tempted 
toward pride. That's our bent. That's our direction. But let me just give you a couple of examples. This is by no means exhaustive. For example, we might find ourselves tempted to pride when it comes to our military. Isn't this true as Americans? We've come to trust in tanks and in intelligence and in government. We can assume that, that God isn't really the one who protects us, who keeps our enemies at bay. That's, that's what fighter jets are for. That's what the nuclear deterrent is all about, right? Well, that's just a sort of a contemporary spin of the very same sin of Edom. They had their mountains. They had their rocks. They had their terrain. But listen to Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. There's also an ever-present temptation to take pride in our sin. Now, of course, there are all of the easy targets. As a society, we have legalized so-called same-sex mirage. Our governor just earlier this year celebrated the advances that Washington State has made with what he called family planning, a horrendous euphemism for the murdering of unborn children. It's also the middle of June, which means you can't turn on the television or turn on the radio or go buy a can of mayonnaise without being inundated with this idea of Pride Month. We're supposed to celebrate the very thing that caused fire and brimstone to rain down upon Sodom and Gomorrah. But again, these are sort of things that it's easy for Christians to poke at. We, we tend to view those things as sort of out there. The truth is, we are a nation of liars. This is why there's a lawyer's office at every major intersection, because we do not keep our word. And while it's easy to shake our head at the alphabet people, the LGBTQIA community. Many Christians seem to have no objection at all to no-fault divorce laws. We're also altogether greedy consumers, or to use the language of Scripture, idolaters. If you doubt me, just wait a couple of months until the next Black Friday rolls around and we read about people who are literally trampled to death in an effort to save a couple of bucks on the latest gaming console. All of this is stuff that as a nation, we take pride in. And all of it is a stench in the nostrils of God. It's also true that we are prone to pride ourselves on our theology. Have you listened to this latest podcast? Have you read this book? Who's your, who's your favorite celebrity pastor? Did, did you go to that conference? The Reformed are some of the worst offenders. Instead of using our creeds and confessions as a soft pillow to rest upon, we use them to bludgeon those with whom we disagree. It's an ugly thing. It seems to me, in my experience, that it is those who wear the badge of reformed that tend to look down their noses at everybody else because they're not as smart as we are. We assume that if people don't cross every T and dot every I just the way that we do, then obviously they are ignorant, uneducated, don't take Scripture seriously, and if we're honest, probably not saved, right? It's an ugly, ugly thing. 
To be known in the Christian community as those who hold most tenaciously to the doctrines of grace. To be some of the most ungracious people in all of the church. It is, it is wicked. It is wicked. The most lethal form of our pride, though, is when we take pride in our salvation. We do this sometimes in subtle ways and then sometimes in not-so-subtle ways. There's the blatant stuff that, where we sort of present our resume to others, showing off just how holy we are. I read this many chapters of the Bible a day. I pray for this many hours. I've never struggled with that sin. How could you? I've always been a pretty good guy. We sort of suggest we belong here. We sort of, you know, put on our makeup and, and do our hair and sort of come together and paint on this smile and, and sort of pretend like we've got it all figured out where, where grace is something that you need. I mean, that's obvious. But I, I got this whole thing kind of figured out. Then there's the other form this shape-shifting monster of pride takes. We might think ourselves better than others because of how many more kids we have. We might think that if we homeschool or have achieved financial stability, that we are more spiritual than others. We do this stuff all the time, don't we? Oh, this person drinks alcohol. Oh, this person doesn't have that degree. Oh, this person wears jewelry. Oh, this person doesn't volunteer at that organization. And we assume that these sort of things make us more or less holy. Maybe you have just tons of Bible information floating around in your noggin. Or maybe you don't have any tattoos or piercings. And therefore, you are convinced that you are more godly. What we need to see, though, is that, that at the end of the day, really what we're doing is we're making it all about us. It's about who I am. It's about what I've done. It's about my works. It's about my accomplishments. It's about what I have or have not done. And really, at the end of the day, what this is, at least what the Bible calls it, is pride. And you know what makes pride so awful? You know what makes pride so ugly? Pride seeks to rival God's grace. This is why pride is such an affront to God. This is why when Satan himself begins to express a little bit of pride, he's booted from heaven. Because pride neuters grace. It castrates the gospel. Because at the end of the day, what pride says, in effect, is this. I got this. I really don't need you, Jesus. I'm good. And as it did to Edom, so it does to us. Verse 3 tells us, the pride of your heart has what? Deceived you. This is what pride does. It tricks us. It whispers lies. It makes us think that we are good, that we are untouchable, that we're better than others, that we've got it all figured out. But we don't. In a lot of ways, then, Edom is sort of Proverbs 16, 18 personified. You remember Proverbs 16, 18? Pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before what? A fall. 
And here's the thing. You'd better believe, Christian, that God knows how to humble the prideful. He specializes in it. You remember our friend Nebuchadnezzar? He had to go out to the pasture because of it. God knows how to humble the proud. Just just look at some of the language that's in front of us. And I want you to, as you do, to notice the contrast. Because on the one hand, you've got the language of exaltation. This is what Edom thinks about itself, right? Verse 3, the pride of your heart. They live, verse 3, up in the clefts of the rock. Their dwelling, still in verse 3, is where? It's lofty. In verse 4, they are compared to a soaring eagle. They are, as verse 4 puts it, as high as the stars. Do you see how we keep going up and up and up and up and up? And in all of this up, they think themselves invincible. God thinks otherwise. Contrast all of that, then, with the language of humiliation. Verse 2, behold, I will make you small. End of verse 2, you shall be utterly despised. End of verse 4, I will bring you down. So they go up, 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 up. And God says, you are going down, down, down. And that's because pride is spiritual suicide. And it's spiritual suicide because we've deceived ourselves into thinking that we are high and lifted up and reigning with Christ. When in reality, we are quite low, far from Christ. The truth of the matter, Christian, is that everything you've received, you've received. It's a gift, isn't it? All of it. All of it is. Think about it. From the air in your lungs to the new heaven and new earth we will inherit. From the bread in your pantry that sustains you to the heart in your chest pumping blood. From our bank accounts to our very love for Christ. It is all gift. It all comes from the benevolent hand of our Father through His Son and by His Spirit. What do you have to be proud of? It's all been handed to you. In fact, even the gospel itself, it is the story, not of pride, right? But of utter humility. Think about it. The forgiveness of sins, our inheritance, the indwelling of the very Spirit of God, our our righteousness, our justification and and adoption and and sanctification and, and glorification. All of these are gospel graces that we get, that that, that are handed to us. And it is all one for us through, again, the utter humility of Christ. Isn't that the flavor of Philippians 2? Remember Philippians 2? We we read there, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, so he's exalted, did not count equality with a God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So so Christ is highly exalted, and he humbles himself to become like us. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do do you see the downward trajectory of our Lord? He's exalted in the heavens. He comes down to become incarnate. He comes down even further to sacrifice himself in death. He goes down even further by crucifixion, right? The, The most ignominious death there is. And he goes down further into the grave. Christ goes down and down and down and down. And it is that very death of Christ that pays the penalty for the sin that we owe. And it's paid by his humble sacrifice. Christ became low to raise us up. He came down to earth so that he would take us up to heaven. Again, he humbled himself to the point of death so that you and I would be raised to new life. This church is the good news of the gospel, that our sovereign Savior was humiliated for our pride. God's pronouncement to us then this morning is this. The proud will be brought low. Remember what Scripture says? God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And so in light of this pronouncement, there are uh, two very brief and concluding applications that immediately follow. Let me give them to you, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer and ask for help. First, God can and God will judge His enemies. Do you doubt me? Let me ask you this. Have you ever met an Edomite? Me neither. I have not. And that's because God pronounced their doom through his prophet Obadiah. And God made good on his word like he always does. Second, pride is lethal. It was lethal for Satan. It was lethal for Edom. And it will be lethal for you and I as well. The Puritan Thomas Brooks put it this way, Pride is a sin that will put the soul upon the worst of sins. I think what Brooks is saying is that pride is a gateway drug. Brooks continues, in only the way a Puritan can, Pride is a gilded misery, a secret poison, a hidden plague. It is the engineer of deceit, the mother of hypocrisy, the moth of holiness, the blinder of hearts, the turner of medicines into maladies and remedies into diseases. So Christian, eradicate pride from your heart. You know how to do that, don't you? There's only one way. Fix your eyes on Christ. Christ and his gospel is the kryptonite to our pride. So run to Christ. Look to Christ. Entrust yourself to him afresh each day. Preach the gospel to yourself relentlessly. And kill pride before pride kills you. Let's go before the Lord together. Father, we recognize 
only because your spirit has given us the eyes to see that from beginning to end of your word, that you have a track record for judging the proud. Whether that is the Edomites or again, whether that be Satan, Lord, we pray that you would eradicate pride from our hearts. And we also know there's no pill to take. There's no 12-step program. This isn't an exercise of, of willpower or something to that effect. This is a work of grace. This is a work of your mercy. This is a work of your sovereign Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus, on our behalf. We pray that you would open our eyes, not to ourselves, but to Him. And then in beholding Him and in His humility, His coming low, His his sacrifice on our behalf, as we behold Him in His humiliation, that it would eradicate pride from our hearts and that we would come to love Him and adore Him and trust Him. For He is where life is found. Give us this grace, we pray, for our good and for Your glory in His name. Amen.